Well, thank you all for coming, um, the few and the proud. Um, my name is Dudley Althaus. I'm a oh, God, correspondent God. in Mexico City for the Wall Street Journal. I think I'm here primarily because I was a correspondent for Texas newspapers in Mexico City, based in Mexico City for uh, 28 years. And um, I started my career on the border in Brownsville where I met Ambassador Garza uh, when we were both fresh out of school. I was out of graduate school here at UT Austin and he had just graduated SMU Law School. So we've known each other for quite a, quite a while and uh, our paths have crossed intermittently uh, in that time. Uh, of course, Ambassador Garza was in Mexico City from 2002 to 2009 and I was there at the same time. We, we talked frequently when, when he was ambassador. So what we're hoping to do is just have um, a good conversation amongst ourselves. We both know the border very well. We both know Mexico and national policy in Mexico pretty well. I think he knows it better than I do probably. But we come at it from a different perspective. Of course, uh, Tony Garza um, was the youngest county judge ever elected in Texas. He was elected at what age? 20? 27. Actually, Benson was younger. But. Benson was younger. Okay. I'm standard, um, but uh, 27 years old, he was elected county judge in Brownsville, a Democratic town. He's a Republican. Um, uh, went on to serve as Secretary of State here and also was the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission and then was later, of course, uh, appointed ambassador to Mexico by George W. Bush. So uh, with that, we can start a little bit. I think the perspective, uh, Tony, is that, I mean, you and I both knew the border back when it was, and, and I said this to you earlier, and I, I like the line, so I'm gonna use it again. The border was a region, not a rampart. We, I stood in on some of these, uh, these conversations this morning, these debates between the legislators and also in the, the session with the, the mayors. And you know, it, it's just like everybody seems to see the border now as, as definitely just the wall. And when we were there, when I was in Brownsville back in the 80s, there was already violence in, in Mexico. There was already the gangsters. But we all crossed the border all the time. We, in fact, Brownsville didn't have good restaurants because everybody crossed into Matamoros to go to dinner. For, if you wanted to have a nice dinner, you went to Matamoros. And now it's, uh, I don't think very many people cross at all. So if we could talk just a little bit about your experience when you were growing up and then in the 80s when it really started getting bad, uh, and then what it's like today and why. Well, first, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And the Tribune has now done this five years, and it amazes mm -hmm. me because it seems like this is an event that's been around forever. Uh, and a lot of people put, uh, put it on their calendar. Uh, and the few, the proud, well, this is Texas, and we've got uh, the, the Longhorn Athletic Director and, and uh, Ms. Pelosi doing their deal somewhere else, so I, I appreciate you guys coming out. The, uh, you know, I, I think like most people that had a, a happy childhood, I could wax nostalgic about going along, growing up along the border and talk of, uh, of the ease, the fluidity of moving back and forth between those two communities of Brownsville and Matamoros, and, and really how it was very idyllic in many senses, uh, the relationship we enjoyed with, with our neighbor. You know, one of the, one of the things that I, I reflect on is that I was eight blocks from the International Bridge in elementary school and 30% of my classmates were from Matamoros and that was just uh, a given. Uh, and so yeah, it was a very different place, but I'm always careful that, you know, my nostalgia shouldn't be shouldn't inform my policy necessarily. You know, I, I, think, I think it informs a perspective. I think we can and should have a very healthy relationship uh, with our neighbor. Uh, but that's not to suggest that we don't have a border that needs enforcing or that we shouldn't have uh, immigration policy that, it, that is, I like to think, responsive to the marketplace or that we shouldn't trade with our neighbor. Uh, but I wouldn't suggest that we should try in any way to go back to those times. Uh, and I say that largely because while that was a wonderful place for me, if you look at other parts of the country, there's, there, I see too often uh, people saying, well, I remember when, and that's what I'd like to go back to. You know, I remember when, and, and, and for a lot of people, if you were black or brown or gay, it wasn't such a great time for 30 or 40 years right. ago. So nostalgia shouldn't inform your policy necessarily. In this case, I think what I'd like to see is an attitude or a fluidity between our border that was reflective uh, of, of the time that I grew up. So it is very different today. 
and, and you know, I was I sat here earlier and listened listening to the mayors, and one of the, the comments I made to Ross Ramsey uh, a few moments ago was how impressed I was with the quality of, of the mayors along the border, uh, and how consistent that was with my notion of lo local control, or at least listen to the people that are closest to some of the challenges. I mean, if you if, if you talk about border issues in this you know, in the political environment today, there seems to be a, a very limited understanding of the border from those people talking about it loudest in Washington and in the political processes. And they just crowd out and shout out those, those mayors and people that each day have a pretty good understanding not only of the challenges, but some of the approaches uh, that we ought to that we ought to be uh, thinking about. So it's well, you know, to me, I mean, listening to the legislators today, uh, it, it's still this Republican Democrat divide, Anglo's from Northern <clears throat> Texas versus Latinos from the border. Everybody's shouting at each other about the wall and about border security. How do you bridge that? I mean, how do you bridge that gap? How would you bridge it? Well, I, I, some of it is Republican and Democrat. Democratic parties, but I think a lot of it is just uh, not to go too far afield. But a lot of it is our political process and our political construct. I mean, if you look at the Republican primaries and Democratic primaries, largely you have individuals that have come from safe seats, running in safe seats, and appeal to to the respective bases of each of their parties. So you don't really have a dialogue. You have a lot of shouting about issues that they, they tend not to understand. I think. You know, it'd be nice if people were more informed voters, and I think that's that's the objective of what we're uh, of, of what we're trying to do with, in, in the Trib Fest. It would be nice if people understood trade policy a bit better and the impact of immigration policy. Uh, and so, I think part of the challenge is informing people about what the vast majority of of folks in this country really want. They they essentially want trade policy and they want immigration reform. You know, the example that I, that I like to point out is. When you're listening, there, there are almost like two conversations about these issues. There's the one that 100% of us engage in each day in the marketplace, whether we're consuming goods. There's that, you know, that large volume of back and forth movement of traded goods between the United States and Mexico. There's the reality of the, of the changing demographic in the United States. And that's the, that's the marketplace that we all participate in. Then there's this sliver of political debate that's representative of a very small community, and you have to ask, well, how are you going to bridge those two? You're going to bridge those two with a lot more participation from people in this country that are largely around the center. They are neither the, the, the left of the anti-trade, let's say, labor groups, or the right of the protectionist kind of nativist stuff. What, um, Recently, you, you just wrote a, a column on, on your personal webpage about pushing past pessimism <laughs> with everything that's going on yeah. right now in the Mexican government. I think part of the frustration in Texas, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, is it's, and, and definitely part of the frustration in Mexico, people don't see things getting better. They're getting worse. Just in the past year, it's been a very rough year. You know, if, when, when Peña Nieto, President Peña Nieto, came into power three years ago, everybody talked about it being Mexico's moment. That didn't last very long, and the past year particularly has been very tough. Uh, I mean, you've had some tremendous corruption scandals, massacres of students, uh, disappearances of students, massacres, and that sort of thing. How, how, how would you say to push through the pessimism? Is there any reason to do that? I mean, well, uh, look, and, I'll, and without going too, too, too far back, I mean, since 2000, Mexico has really changed dramatically. They had had 70, 70 years of one-party rule in that country that, that was essentially and was characterized as the perfect dictatorship. 70 years of one-party rule with elections every six years to kind of you know, d disguise the fact that you had essentially an autocratic government. So in the wake of that, you had both NAFTA, which opened things up. No, not in the wake of preceding that. You had trade, which opened up the marketplace. But you still hadn't opened up the, the country to democracy. Since then, you've had a lot more democracy, and that's not an easy thing. And, and you know, I made the comment in 2002, you know you have a democracy when you have a word for gridlock, when you have a word for nothing is getting done. <laughs> now, point. in the wake of that, you've seen from 2000 forward, you've seen a legislature stand up in that country, have, have, have a lot more place in, in, the, uh, uh, in governance. You've seen a judiciary start to stand up. You've seen the executive come into balance. 
And what, it, what you're starting to, to get a sense is a lot more engagement. So I think Mexico, yeah, this talk abroad of Mexico's moment and the, the reform that was done in terms of energy reform, fiscal labor, these sorts of things, that was done largely because that was what the country wanted. They wanted the sense that they were going to move in a more competitive direction. But you know, it's not something that, that happens overnight. I think there are a couple of things that you look at in Mexico that you have to say, these are all very good signs in terms of ultimately having government more accountable to the people. You have an expanding middle class, and there is no group that will ever hold a government more accountable than a middle class. You have the role of the media, uh, which I think is very important, both the traditional media and the social media in terms of engaging and keeping sort of eyeballs on the government. Uh, you have their integration. You know, Mexico's part of 40-some-odd trade agreements. Their integration into all these multilateral sort of organizations and these trade agreements, those are some externalized. So you have all these factors, I think, that contribute to people holding their own government more accountable. That's how you push past pessimism. You push past pessimism when you think you are participating in your government by holding them more accountable. You just elected a governor in Nuevo León in Mexico, which is one of the large industrial uh, centers of the country. I, mean, I don't know if it's a quarter or 30% of the GDP of that country is represented right in that region. An independent at, at, who just basically blew the doors off that election. Yeah, that's right. Beat the two, big, the two biggest organized party, the PRI and PAN. And I think he ran maybe two spots, two paid campaign commercials. It was largely social media, and it was largely just this movement of people. I think that sent a real signal to the traditional parties that they've got to be more responsive. And one of the things that they have to be more responsive to is just the basic needs of the people and their basic desires. So I think that's how they push past it. It's not something that happens overnight, and it's not something that they can ex expect someone else to do for them. But I think the factors and the environment are in place where Mexicans will be demanding more of their own government, and consequently, they'll be getting better. I mean, that, critics have said like part of the problem with this administration is they've tried to reinstitute the perfect dictatorship, mm -hmm. and they ran up against this New Mexico, right? Well, you know, that was a question I was asked quite a bit after uh, after the last election when the PRA came back into power. They said, "Is this is this the old PRI?" And I said, "Well, you know, it it really doesn't make it any difference." If it is the old PRI, they're going to find a New Mexico. And, and that, I think, has been, they've been perhaps a bit slow in recognizing that. On the other hand, if you look at the successes of this administration in terms of the reform agenda, their ability to pass legislation, that, that was the byproduct of a very disciplined uh, political organization, a party that knew how to, uh, if not, uh, just reach consensus, but, but drive an agenda towards consensus with the other parties and get things done legislatively. Now the challenge, and this is where they move into a, 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 a more open environment, because the legislative process they had pretty good control over. Now as they move into the implementation stage, uh, what I've said is the architects got it right. Let's see what the contractors can do with it. And as they build this, they're going to need more than just good political operatives. They're going to need a much broader base of support in terms of, of, of implementing reform. But actually, I mean, some critics have said that the, the, the pact that got this legislation through the Congress was actually very undemocratic. You have a system in Mexico where the political party bosses have total control over their different members, their, over their caucuses. And so they got this thing through, but now they can't really get it Get it, well, like, listen, I mean, you, you might argue there was a, l a little less than, you know, than the, a pure democracy. But I think uh, it was in line with the desires of the country, and it was effective. And, and I don't think you necessarily sacrificed democracy. You had a certain amount of party discipline that was in line with what people wanted in that country. I think we'd like to see a little bit of that in the United States at times. You'd like to see government more aligned with the desires of the people in this country as opposed to strictly aligned with just the party, you know, line of one or the other party. And I, I think part of a, you know, part of the frustration that we're seeing in the United States and is reflected in our in our presidential cycle is this sense of it's broke. I mean, and that's something that by and large 
both members of the Democratic Party and Republican Party are expressing in, in the primary process. They think something is broke, and, they're, and, 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 and there's this kind of wave of kind of this frustration out there. President Peña Nieto's popularity now is in the low 30s. Uh, three different crises have done that. It was the disappearance of the 43 students in Guerrero, the, the scandal surrounding the, his, the concession of the his, his, his family home being owned by a government contractor, and thirdly, the escape of Chapo Guzman. Now, for the 43 students, the Attorney General's office came up with an entire investigation that came out like two months later, or a month and a half later. This is how it happened. They put it on te national television. It seemed fishy to a lot of us with experience in Mexico. Uh, recently, it just come out, it's come out that the investigation seems to have been largely just invented whole, whole cloth. Uh, Chapo Guzman, he was able to dig a tunnel, a mile-long tunnel, right into his cell, and right into the shower stall of his cell. When the government came out a few days after the escape, he escaped through this mile-long tunnel. The government came, came out with a video showing him walking back and forth in his cell and then putting on his shoes and going down the rabbit hole um, and said there was no audio. Well, this week, somebody in the government just mm -hmm. leaked. There was audio, and the banging was so loud to punch through the, the, the floor of the shower stall, which makes common sense, that it was impossible for anybody to hear any of the guards to hear. After he went down the rabbit hole, a guard did not show up for 20 minutes. And then when he sounded the, the alarm with his commandante, with his commander, the actual alarm wasn't sounded for another nine minutes. Uh, so the government, it almost seems like, going back to the idea of rebuilding the priest perfect dictatorship of, of the 20th century, these guys are just throwing out some crap and expecting it to stick. Well, in each case, uh, you know, in one case, it was cover-up. It was, it, was, it was what they would have done in the older Mexico, the PRI, right. with one, you know, consistent media outlets. And, and again, from the standpoint of people that are viewing the country and saying, where is progress here? The progress is that they weren't a, a, allowed to get away with that, that the government came with their investigation sure. and sure. there was enough eyeballs, whether they be media or others or this independent human rights organization that discredited that report that said, this doesn't sound right and the Mexican people want to know what is right. So I think in that sense, what you have, what you have to view the progress as, the, the very fact that there was an independent investigation and that they're moving in that direction. In terms of the, the, the other scandals that you allude to, you know, Joppa was very, uh, you know, it was one of these sort of bright lights shown on the fact that they continue to have issues of corruption and complicity at the very highest levels. I mean, this was a maximum security prison. This was a very well orchestrated and executed uh, uh, escape. And on this one, I think the government has done a bit better in this sense. They didn't try to, I mean, they essentially stood up and said, we have, you know, we have corruption, it's at the highest levels, we're gonna try to get to the bottom of this. Now, the second part of that is, will they get to the bottom of it? Will they? And so far, there's been sort of, as I call, minor offerings to the, the public, one of them being the pilot, minor offerings to the public in terms of a commitment. This past weekend, they said, well, we got this close to capturing him again, and he, in, in his escape, he banged up his foot and his face and this sort of thing. But at, at, again, at least I think there's progress in the sense that given their other experiences with these, with these matters of corruption, on this one, they're trying to be a bit more transparent, if you will, in terms of their follow-on. Another byproduct of that was, you know, Chapo probably should have been extradited to the United States. I mean, there's that old saw about there's nothing a drug lord fears more than a U.S. prison. And he probably should have been extradited. But here we are, uh, you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, and you're starting to see a greater flow of of uh, these drug lords to the United States, you know, a handful of them a couple of weeks ago. I think what's, what's going to be telling, and I made this comment to, to uh, a couple of people in this administration a few days ago, I said, you're moving in the direction, I think, albeit slowly, of reestablishing some credibility with the Mexican people. But one of the things that they'll be looking closely at is issues of public corruption and how are those pursued. And it, not only issues of public corruption that might be characterized as political because they are of opposite party, 
but issues of public corruption within your own party. And, and I think that's going to be a bit of the, the, the litmus test. My guess is that if they start approaching those matters, they will start to regain a, a bit of credibility. More likely that they'll do it closer to election cycles where they think that the, the political benefit will be uh, significant as well. Put back on your ambassador hat. Um, if you were ambassador when the students disappeared, when the house happened, when Chapo escaped, what goes on inside the embassy? I mean, what, uh, you have to work with the government you're, you're working with, but what, I mean, what? People got to be banging their heads against the wall, right? Well, you know, in the case of the, of, of the student, it is tragic. And the, 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 I think the role of the embassy there is not to get necessarily out in front of the, the government in any way, but I think there you have, and you saw them play out, do not underestimate the, the value of the NGOs, of the, uh, of the uh, civil society responses, and there you had Mexican civil society playing a significant role in, in pushing towards an investigation. So some of these you, you, you're going to be more public and visible about. Others you can be far more effective by encouraging the proper NGOs and the proper players in civil society. In the case of Chapo, I think we had to be uh, recognized that the coordination that we want on the law enforcement and security side is something that's ongoing. So in spite of your, your anger, if you will, that I'm sure many people in the law enforcement uh, community were feeling, you can't blow up the relationship or the cooperation or the coordination over this. What you have to do is get in there and say, okay, how can we continue to cooperate? How can we, in effect, reestablish some level of, of trust on some of, these, on some of these issues. You know, in a relatively short period of time, Dudley, what I saw from 2002 to, to 9, in the wake of 9-11, we had to establish a, 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 a working relationship on counterterrorism. And we went from what used to be ritual exchanges of information and essentially press releases to intelligence, which is a much higher quality of, uh, and, and value to nearly real-time exchange of intelligence. And if you're not doing that real-time, the effectiveness or the value of that is almost nil. And how did we do it? We did it because, one, our interests aligned. We had an interest in counterterrorism and protecting our peri perimeter. They had an interest in our intelligence in terms of protecting the, uh, uh, the, the oil-producing uh, regions and their tourist areas. And so there was an alignment of interest and a willingness on their part to let us do everything from vet, qualify, and polygraph the people we were working with, something that would have never happened save that alignment of interest in our desire in counterterrorism. So you don't want to blow that up because something like this happens. You want to get in there and, and, and get closer to the resources with which you have established a relationship and have some trust in. So you've got to push it a little bit, but not... You, you've got to push, but you've also got to recognize this isn't a hostile... Uh, partner. This is a partner with which, with which we do a tremendous amount of trade. This is a partner with which we will always be a neighbor. This is a partner that impacts us perhaps more culturally and demographically than any other sort of, you know, country in, in, in the region, perhaps the world. And so you, you, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's all about just the economics or the cultural or the demographic. You have to put those all into the mix when you're addressing specific uh, sorts of issues like this. You know, listening to the legislators uh, earlier today, it, it's really, it, it's kind of, um, people have to talk out of both sides of their mouth at, at some point, because when Mexico, when Ciudad Juarez blew up in 2008, and I covered it a lot, mm -hmm. actually El Paso even then was one of the safest cities in America. Um, but the border sheriffs, because there was a lot of funding that was being made available. Border sheriffs screamed about the danger of the border, how, how much it's going to cross. So actually, the border cities are actually pretty safe. Um, so then today, everybody's blaming each other, yelling, well, you guys are saying this, you guys are saying that. But in fact, the border is safe, but people also want to get some funding down here, both Republicans and Democrats in the state legislature. So I mean, 
you were a county judge, how, how would you deal with that? I mean, basically, Cameron County's not that dangerous, uh, where you were a county judge. Uh, Laredo's not dangerous. Yeah, look, uh, but part of it is, there, there's, a, there's a couple of things I think at play. I mean, what is crossing the border? When they talk about border security, what are we talking about really? Are we talking about people? Are we talking about drugs? Are we talking about violence? There's, the violence isn't crossing. The drug trade's shared by both sides. Uh, the gangsters often live on the Texas side of the border. Um, what are we talking about? Well, two things. One is, I think, institutionally in both the capitals of Mexico and the DF and in DC, there has been really a failure to appreciate the kind of <coughs> and the need for investment along the border. And consequently, I think that has lagged, and that's, that's been the case forever. So we're constantly playing catch up in the most basic infrastructure. And, and, on, and that's, you know, whether it be water, roads, schools, what, there's those challenges. The second one is when people, I think, in, in a community like mine, like Brownsville, uh, when we talk about security, there's two things that we're really talking about. One is the perception abroad that somehow border communities on the north side of the border are war zones. They're not. They are. They're safe, and, they're safe communities. They're great communities. They're wonderful communities to, to spend time and grow up in. But what I think on, on some level, when people in the community are talking about security, they're very careful because on one hand, what they're bemoaning is the loss of that fluidity, that ease at which Brazil and Matamoros were one community, that ease at which Laredo and Nuevo were one community. That's what's been lost, and I think that's a security. But at the same time, there's a reluctance to say that too loudly because you don't want to broadcast to the world that your community with challenges or with problems. And, and, and it, is, it, you know, it, it is a difficult line to walk. I listened to the mayors this morning, and I, I said, I'm, I was really impressed with this group of mayors. And at the same time, they, they essentially sound, all sounded like presidents of the Chamber of Commerce. Right. And that's one part of it. But the other, the other part of a job like that is making sure that there is a recognition and that smart solutions are being put in place to some of these. Because if you are not vocal as a, as a local mayor or as local representative, your, your, your policy will be made in Iowa. And it won't be made in Brownsville. And that's not a good place to have border policy being made. Um, one of the big issues right now is, is the Eagle Ford gas and oil play and, and whether it goes into Mexico. I did a story last year on this right across the border, right, right on the river. Um, and I was with a Houston-based exploration uh, company looking for gas and oil, um, pretty much just downstream from Eagle Pass. Inside the camp of this company were representatives for the Setas, the, the gang. They're right there, right at the, the entrance, like the security entrance. There's a guy a few feet off the road watching from the, from, the, from the bushes. And he's there all the time. With oil so low, Mexico's still betting on developing their oil and gas resources. Mm -hmm. With the prices so low, with Texas gas and oil so abundant, why would anybody go into Mexico right now? And why, why would Mexico even want them to? I mean, you, you deal with companies now in your, in your current role you know, in consulting and everything else. I mean, what are they thinking? What, what are the companies thinking? Well, first, don't, don't ever underestimate the cynicism of a dollar. It'll go where it's treated well. And, and I think while the marketplace right now is a tough one, and you know, I, I always like to say that there's, there's no wrong time to do the right thing. And what Mexico did in terms of its energy reform, I think was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, they doing it in the face of a difficult market. You know, no doubt that there'd be a lot more interest if you had, you know, if, if, if oil was north of 90 bucks, let's say 80 bucks or something, where it spent a lot of time last year, or in the last couple of years. And so I, I think that is, they're going to get there in terms of the energy reform. If you look at the different aspects of it, the offshore is, is not what you're talking about. No. The shallow waters is not what you're talking about. And those are the biggest prizes. If you look at the stuff adjacent to the Eagleford, it, it's going to be, you know, I think those plays suggest that it's going to be attractive at some point. I don't see that as necessarily being attractive in the next three to five years. I think that, that's, that's further out. 
And there's a lot of infrastructure that's going to have to ca uh, catch up, not the least of which is that notion of security and, and these sorts of things. But one of, the, one of the things that most consistently I hear from people in the energy sector is, Mexico will simply never be the most dangerous environment that we've ever operated in. True. That if you look at that, this is, this is a group of, of companies and, and uh, an entire sector that is, that is, that is comfortable with, with risk. They would, they, it's almost as though they were more comfortable assuming the risk related to security than they are political risk. I mean, they look more at expropriation or those possibilities than they necessarily say, how are we going to manage around issues of, you know, the kind of, of, of drugs and thugs type, type security. So I think Mexico is going to get there. They're going to need a you know, little lift in the market. I think what we're going to see, uh, quite honestly, is, is as the, the energy prices in Mexico start to fall, which they will, you're going to see much more manufacturing. You're going to see a much more integrated North American platform in terms of the United States generally and Mexico. You're going to see a, a region in northeastern Mexico and the Eagle Fort and Texas that is going to be very well positioned in the context of North America and ultimately, I think, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that is going to be very well poised to drive growth in the world. And you know, so when we're looking at what would happen if you were trying to produce in the Burgos Basin tomorrow, how would you deal with the Zetas? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's a fair concern, but we're not trying to do that tomorrow. That's the market's dictating that's going to be a few years out. What we have to look at is how does this region compete in the context of, of the global economy? And I think we're very well positioned, and we should see Mexico we should look at Mexico more strategically as a partner, more strategically as a manufacturing platform. You know, you, you hear this, 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 this background noise of the presidential primary about losing jobs to Mexico, losing jobs to China. The truth of the matter is Mexico has very integrated production platforms. 40% of the content in something produced in Mexico is, is U.S. So we're not, really, we're not necessarily losing these jobs. We're creating a much more competitive manufacturing platform. I, you know, I, I understand what your question is. You want, you want me to say, well, you know, that's, that is horrible. Yeah, it is horrible that there's Zetas in, in the Burgos Basin. That is horrible. But you're looking at a group of companies that, that understand risk and I think can manage around risk pretty well. We're talking about trade. I mean, Donald Trump is where he is in the polls in particular because of what's going on with manufacturing. And it's easy to hit Mexico on that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm from, well, da I'm from Dayton, Ohio, to, which was a General Motors to town. It, but if you look at, the, if you look at the, the realities of it, you'd much rather have this manufacturing going on nearshore than offshore. Sure. You know, I alluded to the content in, in, a, in something that says made in Mexico. If 40% of that content is U.S., that's a good thing. If it says made in China, it's probably 2% of that content. If it says made in India, it's probably 4% of that content. So you want it near. The, and so, I, you know, you hear these sorts of things. And, the problem with trade policy and the problem with immigration policy, quite frankly, is the old, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. And that's why it's easy to, to put these sort of these, these slogans out there. You know, I'll, I'll do a better deal than, than you know, I'll, I'll make more deals and we'll have more jobs and taxes will go down and, you know, there'll be a, you know, what is it, chicken in every pot right. and this sort of thing. But that's not the world we live in. I mean, but part of the whole thing about NAFTA and why NAFTA is vulnerable, why Trump's hitting on NAFTA so much, and Bernie Sanders from the other side, is, yeah, trade has exploded dramatically. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some of the manufacturing in Mexico, the wages are still pathetic. Mm -hmm. I mean, pathetic. Right now in the auto plants in Mexico, Mexico just attracted eight new auto plants from Asia and Europe in the past year and a half, two years. And um, the average wage in the auto plants online for the, the assembly line are three dollars an hour and with benefits are seven dollars an hour even in the u.s south which is not um unionized the cost was 49 50 dollars an hour now you can argue from a company standpoint why well, would you pay 50 but, but, bucks but, no, i'm not going to argue from the company but but standpoint. what i'm, I'm asking is what about economic development the, the econ the economics of it is there has been no more powerful engine for the growth and for the moving of people out of extreme poverty than trade and yeah, we can, we, can, we can benchmark Mexican wages against the U.S., but that's not a, that's not a fair benchmark. I think if you're in Mexico, you're saying, how, how is the middle class growing? How is investment falling? 
how is what we're doing in North America consistent with a better North America and a better United States? Look, some of these jobs have been lost. What we constantly have to do is how do you work yourself up the value add? How, how do you replace the job you lost with a better job? Sure. And that is something that, that the United States has done very well forever. There's no more innovative and no more productive country than the one we live in. And so we're, we're, we're definitely the big engine in the world's economy. And how do you have complementary pieces in your, in, your, in your region, in North America? Right. And I think Mexico happens to be doing the sorts of things that are putting them in the position to be a much more complementary piece to the United States, whether it be in terms of the economy or the demographics. And that's an interesting one because when we talk about immigration, if, if, we're, if we're going to grow in this country, it's going to be through trade and it's going to be through immigration. And we have a moment right now where we're st we, we still could draw on that labor. Curiously, it, it, it's looking like it's tougher and tougher to see Mexico as that country that's going to be exporting that labor because people are starting to stay home. So we have to look for ways that we can be complementary with our neighbors. I mean, we've been talking about Mexico, but that same goes for Canada. How, how can we be complementary and align ourselves with what's going on in terms of global trade? You know, we get this, the TPP done. I mean, that's going to align 40% of the world's GDP. I mean, that is not an insignificant. And it's not just trade and the economy and the jobs. It's your ability as a country to have that soft power, your ability as a country, the United States, to drive a foreign policy, to be strategic about our influence in other parts of the world, something that I think is best done through trade. Going back to, uh, to security a little bit, you were ambassador when they started the Meriden Initiative, the, mm -hmm. the program to increase security aid to Mexico. Some $2 billion has been spent. It's been a very, very mixed success, I would think, no? I mean, what, Well, I mean, you still have tremendous police corruption. They focused on the federal police, and the federal police are the ones that are making up a lot of the stuff that, about the 43 students missing. Um, a total lie, apparently, if you believe the PGR now, uh, the, the Attorney General's office. I mean, what, what do we get for $2 billion? Well, look, I, I, always, I always viewed Medi the, as being to security what NAFTA was to trade. That if you were going to have a place at the table in terms of the discussions were related to security, you had to get in there and do the sorts of things that allowed us to work more closely with their law enforcement and their intelligence community, whether it was the hardware, whether it was the training, whether it was putting the, the, the plumbing in place for the intelligence exchanges. And that's what many of that was about. Does it mean that we were going to have things change overnight? No, cultures do not change overnight. You do not have rule of law reform take overnight. You may have seen The Economist a couple of weeks ago do, did a piece on Mexico and there was some kind of, was kind of a flip remark or a wry remark. He says the thing, I think it was George Osborne says, the thing about rule of law you have to remember is the first five centuries are the toughest. And, <laughs> and I think we have been very blessed in the United States that we have built a rule of, rule of law culture relatively quickly. And we've built a very solid one. But other countries are going to take a bit of time. I think Medida was about us being at the table as they went through that process and having the kind of input that that sort of initiative allows us to have. Certainly, you know, the sums of money are large. What has flowed from it, I think, is more cooperation. What has flowed from it is more integration in terms of our law enforcement and counterterrorism communities that would not have been the case if we simply walked away and said, good luck. We didn't have the luxury of say, walking away and saying, good luck on this, because at a billion and a half dollars of trade a day, at the fact that we share this border and that's not gonna change, we had to find ways that we could integrate ourselves into the security in a positive way, very much like had been done with NAFTA on the trade side. President Pena, during, under President Calderon, the last president, uh, he did tighten relations between the U.S. and parts of the Mexican military, particularly the Marines, the, the Mexican Navy Special Forces who were trained by U.S. Navy SEALs, and actually took down most of the gangsters that were taken down, mm -hmm. either killed or captured. 
in those years. President Peña Nieto has walked that back, at least publicly. And what would you think? You're not in the embassy anymore, but how much of that, the walking back of it, has been public relations inside Mexico? Are they still cooperating? I mean, the Marines are now, you mentioned Chapo Guzman maybe was injured trying to escape Marines just this week, whether that's true or not. Yeah. But I mean, it's the Marines that are still after him. Are they still cooperating well, closely? Yes. Would you have to, you know, at the start of this, I talked about 2000 and the Fox election and the opening up to the democracy. And I think one of the things that, in the wake of 9-11 and their democracy, and Fox and Calderon's real desire to address some of these security issues, the level of co uh, cooperation changed dramatically, dramatically. Those were also 12 years that the PRI was out of office. And what I think they sensed more was going on when they came back into office and said, my God, this isn't the way we used to do it. Right. And they tried to somewhat put it back in the nature and, and form that they recognized from the late 19, you know, 1990s. But the environment had changed. The urgencies had changed. The rationale for this sort of cooperation had changed. So initially, they, as you say, they walked back the level of cooperation a bit because I think it was so, it, it, was, it was shocking to them. Uh, but they've moved towards, I think, something that this administration is very comfortable with and quite frankly, isn't altogether that different from what had been going on in earlier administrations. They've probably, you know, they've tailored it to their comfort, but more importantly, they've probably focused it on what the needs are today. I'll never forget uh, President Calderon having a conversation with, with uh, then President Bush, and when Bush says, what do you need? And Calderon just kind of looked at him, and he didn't really have a ready response. And you may remember the show 24 Hours at that time. He says, if Jack Bowers got it, I want it. And it was kind of a funny moment where he basically said, I need everything because this, this, this is a challenge. And the other analogy he'd use is he came into office in 2006 and knew his country had problems. He said, I opened up that patient and I found a fully metastasized cancer. And so if you look at what Calderon was doing and what Fox was doing, they were responding to something that was very deep. It's not something you'd point the finger at the PRI and say, you caused it. But there were a lot of things going on in the region. For every success of our war on whatever in Colombia, a new problem was created in Mexico. And as long as you have this massive consumption of drugs, wherever they might be, they are going to be uh, supplied. And so the platforms moved from other places in the region to Mexico. It was as though this was the near shoring of the drug, uh, of the drug trade. And these two presidents recognized it, and they tried to deal with it. And that meant Merida, and that meant broader cooperation. And when the PRI came in, I think initially they were shocked by it, but I think they've accepted the fact that their northern neighbor is a very able partner and needs to be at that table. In both the disappearance of the 43, y'all understand what the 43 students I'm talking about? Everybody? Okay. In the disappearance of the 43 students and in the escape of Chapo Guzman, is it possible that, one, the Attorney General's office could make up an investigation, solve an investigation whole cloth with an invention, and that Chapa Guzman could, be, could escape from the tightest security prison in Mexico without somebody in the Mexican President's office being aware of that? How high up did it go, would you think? Uh, Beforehand. You know, I mean, if the Attorney General I mean, it was pretty amazing. They, 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 they picked up these kids, they tortured them, put them on national TV, and they confessed to how they had killed and incinerated these 43 students, which experts on everything said this was impossible that it would happen that way. It turns out later that they just tortured these kids, and they're like you know, bricklayers. When, <laughs> when you say beforehand, I So, think, I mean, how I could the Attorney after, General? After the fact, there had to have been some uh, uh, understanding of what, what was going on in terms of the cover-up at some level, whether, whether it's right into the president's office, I kind of doubt it, whether it's into the attorney general's office uh, or the uh, Secretary of Gobernacion, I kind of doubt it. But I, Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm going to tell you why. Because at, at so many levels below that, individuals feel as though it's their 
problem to solve for their boss. And that's where you create a lot of missteps because people without a clear sense of what the larger implications or the larger stakes or the larger fallout will be think they are, uh, are fixing things for their boss. And so I don't know if that was the case necessarily with the cover-up on the 43, but I've seen that uh, time and time again in government. With respect to the escape of Chapel, I, I will tell you that I seriously doubt that it got into, into or onto the desk of, of a minister level or higher prior to that. I just can't see that. But I would tell you that the, I, I can't imagine it happening without a lot of complicity at many levels of government. Right. We can open this up to questions. If, if y'all are interested, please line up. Um, anybody questions for the ambassador? Please, no? Well, here we go. Sorry, that, that's off too. But no, implicitly or? Implicitly encourage the rest of the government to do this. Do they have thinking about the approval uh, in uh, apprehending and deporting Central Americans um, trying to come up to the attention of the Right. Which, you know, is by most reports at least being encouraged by the U.S. In cases like that, is there more concern in the ambassador's office about whether or not the rule of law and human rights are being respected? Well, if I understand the question, there was many that was, was about getting more cooperation on a broad range of issues, i.e. on their southern border. And I think the, the answer to that is yes. I mean, we, we wanted to see more cooperation on a broad range of issues. And the policy, and I think, was that the further you can push a threat away from your own border, the safer you will be. And so to that extent, yes on whether or not we have been as engaged in the nature of their operations along the southern border, my guess is probably not. Uh, and there would be two reasons for that. One is, in terms of internal operations, domestic operations, I have, in Mexico, traditionally, that's when the, the whole sovereign flag gets waved. It's, if we're going to cooperate, if we're going to be enforcing along our southern border, that is entirely a domestic issue. That is a sovereign issue. But to what I said a second ago, that is the sort of, of uh, thing where the NGOs and the human rights organizations play a very important role. The, you know, I have, I have, I can only imagine when they've militarized their entire southern border, that there are the kinds of things that we would find offensive going on. But that is properly, more, more comfortably done within the NGO and international human rights uh, communities. You know, and this might strike some people as odd, I mean, from the conservative side of the aisle, a Republican, but I will tell you that the NGOs and these international organizations do very good work in a lot of markets. They might drive a lot of folks crazy, but there is a role for them engaging directly with civil society in emerging and developing countries. But the apprehensions on the southern Mexican border have skyrocketed, mm -hmm. and, and that really took the pressure off the Obama administration yeah, last summer. without a doubt, without a doubt. I think it was like a quarter million people in a, in a, in a few months, and they're still doing it. Yes. Okay, I have a question that's actually a little bit different from some of the questions that have been asked in this type of thing. Um, I'm really curious how you become an ambassador and also what types of things, because I'm a political science and communication major and have studied abroad and things like that and yeah. I'm about to graduate. And so that's the type of thing that would interest me more than being a legislator. And um, I'm curious like what types of experiences you need to have or you know, how long-term of a commitment it is, whether it's like a lifetime commitment or whether you can just be involved in it for like 20 years or? Okay. Uh, I, I, I went sort of a non-traditional route. Mm -hmm. I met a guy that became president. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I will tell you, 
I, I would encourage anybody that has, at any point in their career, I, mm -hmm. saw, I saw people right out of college, I saw mid-career, two of my special assistants had been partners in uh, law firms, one in North Carolina and another, no, she'd not been a partner in a law firm, she'd been with a state lauder or something, where it was mid-career, another fellow late career that had joined the Foreign Service. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage you, if it's the kind of thing you wanna do, go on that State Department uh, website, look mm -hmm. at the Foreign Service exam, get into it, uh, and you're gonna see that it is an amazing career for people, and they absolutely mm -hmm. love it. Uh, and through there, that's the career track mm -hmm. towards, the, uh, towards the ambassador's offices. In my case, I think it was obviously, I say this somewhat flip, flippantly, but it, for me, having served at the, grown up in a border community, having served at the local level and the state level, having mm -hmm. been involved in issues of public policy, uh, it was really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, when when uh, George Bush was elected president, we had several conversations and he was kind enough to say, he asked me if I was interested in anything. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, I would absolutely love to represent the United States in Mexico. Mm -hmm. There is nothing quite like knowing that you are the representative of this country abroad. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of a special thing. In my case, my four grandparents were from Mexico and I mm -hmm. was able to return uh, as the United States representative. Mm -hmm. I, I challenge you to find another country that makes opportunity that available that quickly to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to people, and that's the United States. So there's two ways, mm -hmm. I, th I think, Maybe the uh, Foreign Service is more traditional, more, more, you know, more surefire route to that office. What's the breakdown between political appointees and Foreign Service officers? You know, I, I don't know what the breakdown is. There's always been that, that, that kind of back and forth about which posts are appropriate to political uh, appointees and which are definitely career. Uh, I, I don't know the breakdown. I think our history has been pretty good with both political and career people. But I think mostly it's, it's, mostly it's, it's career. career. Yeah, mostly, mostly career. career. Okay. Key Thank you. Hi, I have a question for you, Mr. Garza. Uh, my name is Beverly. I'm actually from Westlaco, Texas, so we're basically neighbors. Yes, oh, Westlaco. Okay. Yeah, so we're basically the neighbors. Or um, I actually have a question based on a quote that you gave to the Brownsville Herald in 2013. Uh, apparently, you had a photograph taken, and they they posted it as a thank you note for you and your years of service there. You pretty much said that. Home isn't where you're from, it's who you are, and Brownsville very much defines me, right. and uh, so on, so on, et cetera. But based on that, with your ties there and how you've lived there, and you know the border itself, how do you digest the political candidates that state ideas on, in terms of you know, what goes on and what they can do in the future if they've never exactly been there and seen it and know what's going on? <coughs> well, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I look at, I assume that's sort of a variation on a Trump or Sanders question, right? And, you know, on, on the left, I see this sort of vehement sort of anti-trade stuff, and it concerns me, because I, I do think trade is <coughs> the quickest route to prosperity for, for peoples of both countries. On the right, when I hear somebody think that the, res the proper response to, to immigration is a wall, I'll tell you, I don't think it's very effective. I've seen walls. My brother-in-law's farm's got a, got a wall going through it, and it, didn't, it, it creates essentially a no man's land on the south end of that, of that wall. I don't think it's the best use of resources. I'd like a safe and secure border, but I don't think that's the best uh, resources. When you start talking about eliminating you know, uh, birthright citizens, you know, that, Many of these responses are either not efficient, they're not economical, if you're talking about deporting massive numbers of people, or they're not constitutional. And, and yet they seem to be fairly popular amongst folks. I say if you come to the border and you want a safe and secure border, you're going you're gonna to see there are better ways to do it. You're going to see that there are communities that need and, 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 and thrive with that sort of level of integration between the two, and you're going to be more, more uh, you're, you're going to have wiser responses. You're going to have better responses, things that are that are in the best interest of the United States. You know, when I when I talk about trade or immigration reform, I don't I don't see that as necessarily in the best interest of any other country but my own, and and that's what I think good policy is. It's in the best interest of the United States, and you know, trade and immigration. And perhaps uh, that that quote was, yeah, I feel very much a part of the border. I think it informs a lot of, of uh, a lot of the way I look at the world, 
but I've taken a step far enough back away from it and served in a number of positions and kind of you know hit the books on a number of issues that I do happen to think that trade and immigration reforms are the best interest of the in, of the entire country, not just the border. Ambassador, 20, 30 years ago, when Southern California was very much getting very radicalized about immigration, Texas was much less so. It was much more easygoing on the issue. Now, Texas has seemed to have caught up or even surpassed views in Southern California. I, I don't know if it's a question. It's just like I'm amazed that it's happened this way. Well, I, mean, I, am, I am too, and I think it, it's interesting because it's almost as though there are two, two kind of dialogues or two conversations going on. One is, one is a relatively, I said this a second ago, one is a relatively small group of political people that don't seem to understand the issues and want to talk very loudly about the issues and are largely speaking to each other. But part of it is also our political process kind of rewards that. As long as you have very small turnouts and highly sort of, you know, the redistricting has led us to these very safe seats and smaller and smaller groups have sway in who's elected, you're going to hear that amongst this group. And then there's a much larger group of people that trade each day, that work in communities each day, that are concerned about these issues, that don't seem to participate. So we can blame the political process, and that's probably fair that, you know, some of the blame goes there and they don't, they're not terribly representative at times. But we can also blame this large group of people that have not gotten involved enough to, 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 to make political types listen. Next question. Hi, um, I'm Luis Mendoza from Monterrey, Mexico. And talking about this political process in, in Mexico uh, 15 years ago, I want to know your opinion about the next elections in Mexico with this um, independent governor and with Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador with his new uh, party. And what do you think it will be, the next elections in Mexico in 2018? Sorry. I, th I think it'll be a, uh, Mexico historically has had large turnouts actually. Uh, but I think this is going to be a extraordinarily large turnout. It'll, there'll be a significant independent group out there. I don't know where they'll align necessarily with, with any of the parties. I think if you look at Mexico, it's probably more comfortably, like I would say the United States is very comfortably a center-right country. I think Mexico is probably a center-left country. Uh, part of the, the, what's hard to see right now are who are the players going to be. I think if the PRI fields somebody that is well regarded as, as kind of a forward looking, uh, maybe kind of a technocrat, because that's a bit of a contrast from the current who's not viewed as a technocrat, uh, that might be interesting. If the PAN fields a, a candidate uh, that also has, you know, a woman or a business person, that sort of profile might be interesting. I don't think Andres Manuel will necessarily, I don't think he will necessarily be the candidate. And I know that's counterintuitive because he's run so many times and he's got a, a block of votes out there. But I think that's the big question mark for me. If there is a center-left candidate that is uh, legitimate in people's minds and there's a desire to reject the traditional parties, the PRI and the PAN, that might be the place to watch. Someone, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to use him as a sort of a, a type, but 10 years ago, Ramon de la Fuente, who was at UNAM, was perceived as smart, academic, thoughtful, out there. That, I'm not, I'm not suggesting Ramon's interested or going to, but that type of person uh, might have some appeal. It, it's, it's actually, I think it's very early, but you can see there's, there's something going on in the country in terms of the independent movements. There's something in terms of wanting to reject the PRI, given those numbers, so they've got to do, and the PAN seems to be in a bit of a disarray still. So it's, it's still pretty early. So I think it might be the election of, of the right figure from the slightly left of center. Or Bronco. Um, Bronco is still I don't out see there. a true independent. I don't see an independent without a party. I think, I think in a national race, you need something that resembles party infrastructure. You need something that resembles plumbing. Do you think Mexico will be prepared to be governed uh, with an um, independent pres president in the next years or not? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, 
not a true independent a la Bronco. I think in a national race, you still need something that resembles party infrastructure. Thank you. Final question. Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Anjanet, and I am a citizen of the United States, and I'm a citizen of Mexico. And as such, um, one of my biggest concerns is to see from both nations what are we doing to stop the crime and the violence in both nations. I see a lot of talk, and during the festival we have talked a lot about uh, drugs and illegal immigration, but I never see people talk about the responsibility of the United States in prosecuting weapon trafficking. Mm -hmm. The crimes are being committed in my country because manufacturers and because of the gun laws in the United States not having enough restrictions to really monitor and track where those weapons are going to. So in your position now, and I know that you have still a lot of influence um, in our federal government, people listen to you. <laughs> um, what if, or if you did have that influence, <laughs> what would be your recommendation, even for the state government in Texas, that we love our guns, but what would, could we do to stop the trafficking of weapons that are killing our Mexican citizens and yeah, Americans? Well, I'll, I'll try to answer that, and I'm not terribly expert on the gun laws, but I, I think it's already illegal to export a lot of these weapons, so you might start right there with the export of weapons. And then the, uh, the second would be there are, there are the, uh, background the background checks and the, the uh, was it the pawn shop loopholes and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. There's some very, you know, it, it's funny in the sense that there's some ba very basic things that can be done with laws that are already on the books. And so I would start right there. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know if I have a, a good, good answer for you. But I would start right there with there are some laws on the books that need enforcing and they're simply not enforced. I mean, I would like to see a movement towards really enforcing those laws, but we're not talking about setas buying just one web, you know, one gun. We're talking about massive shipments of guns to Mexico. So the same way that drugs are coming in, guns are going out. Yeah. And I don't see any seat from the federal government and the state government, I don't see any initiatives to stop that or to detain it at the border. We talk about a secure border, we could start with that. So are there, do you know in your investigations if the legislature or the Texas government is doing anything to promote that? Or what would you tell us as citizens? Well, no, I, I would repeat what I, what I just said, and I would say this to, to anybody in the federal government, primarily since they control the, the, uh, the ports of entry, is enforce the laws we have on the books. And, and I think that would be a good start. Okay. Uh, there's also the matter of guns, and I'm, this is not the but the matter of guns coming up through Central America and other parts of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, of the region. So it's, it's a big one. You're right. I mean, there's no doubt it's a challenge. There's a lot of gun violence in the country. But I would start by enforcing the laws that we have on the books. I think it's already illegal to export those, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's illegal. But I mean, the guns are flowing into Mexico a lot and, and also coming up from Central America. Um, you know, just this past summer, uh, one of the gangs in, in Jalisco shot down a police helicopter. Supposedly the, the helicopter was hovering and they were rappelling out of the helicopter and the guy got lucky with an RPG, but it was an RPG. The yeah. same sort of stuff that's used in Iraq and they shot down a helicopter. Um, I haven't been to the border in a while, but they, they did stop, they were stopping cars going into uh, Mexico on both the US side and the Mexico side for a while. But it, it, same as people here complain about drugs flowing out from Mexico, well, uh, that border is porous on both sides, right? But the Mexican government actually stepped up enforcement as well. I mean, it used to be you could cross the border in five minutes in El Paso to Juarez, and now it's, it takes a while sometimes. Yeah. So, it, but yeah, I think the guns, just as anybody in, in, in Dayton, Ohio, where I'm from, can get a hold of Mexican heroin, anybody in Michoacan can get a hold of U.S. guns. Thank you. All right. Yes, I, sir. One last question. Okay. Hi, my name is Alberto Estrada. I'm from Monterrey, Mexico. Regarding the war on drugs, uh, my question is, uh, where should the focus be more uh, on the U.S. government? And what should be like the, the, the balance? Focusing on, on Mexico, on the border, on these Merida plans, on, on El Chapo Guzman, or focusing on the traffic of the drugs from the border up to all of the U.S.? and uh, 
focusing on the consumption and the, the culture or, or, or of drugs in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I'd say all of those. I'm going I'm to tell you, because no, really, unless you look at them all, uh, I, I'd sit there in meetings in Mexico and people, people would talk entirely about consumption and then they'd go kind of pivot right into decriminalization and right into legalization and right into taxation and putting it right back. And I'd say, fine. You know, one, I don't necessarily support all that. But even if you had all that tomorrow, if you still had weak rule of law and you didn't have the security initiatives in place and you didn't have a trying to build some institutions in that country, you'd still have violence. So I think from the, from the standpoint of the United States, certainly we've got to look at consumption. And from the standpoint of Mexico, that doesn't mean that they don't have some huge challenges in terms of security and rule of law. You can't, you can't do one with them. You know, you've got to do them all. It's, uh, it's not that easy. What, what, the way you frame that question, without, probably without even intending to, is why we're always pointing fingers at each other. Yeah. It's why the Mexicans are always saying, God damn, if you guys weren't using it, we wouldn't be dying on the streets. And we say, wait, wait, wait. That, it's not that simple. You need to have much stronger institutions. And, and that's, that's, that's the other half of this, this equation. Thank you all for coming.